0: I bring you greetings from Reformation Christian Fellowship, where it was my honor to uh, preach last Sunday as part of our uh, Pillar Network pulpit swap. As we were driving to RCF last Sunday, uh, Zoe asked me, Daddy, is Reformation Christian Fellowship a Baptist church? I said, yes, they're a Baptist church. And she said, well, then why isn't it in their name? What if somebody wants to know if it's a Baptist church or not. And I picked on them just a little bit uh, about that last Sunday, but I'm just happy to be back at Pocosin Baptist Church (laughs) this Sunday. I love you dearly. I was blessed, I hope you were, by my brother and friend Michael Howard and the word of God that he faithfully preached last Sunday. My soul was stirred to hear him talk about an edified built-up, maturing, and multiplying church from the Word of God. I hope you were encouraged by that as well. And I'm just encouraged to know that there are multiple partner churches in our area that are preaching the same gospel, that are upholding the same things and pursuing the same things in the local church. What a gift and what a joy that is to know that we are not alone here on the peninsula, here in Hampton Roads, as we seek to exalt Christ together. Uh, So you may not know this, but this Tuesday is a big and important day. It's not because there's going to be people dressed in costumes asking for candy, but because this Tuesday marks the 506-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. It began when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and that marked the beginning of a radical transformation and a recovery of the importance of the Word of God and the truthfulness of the gospel in the local church. Now, when Martin Luther posted those theses to the castle church door, he was not seeking to start a fight with the Roman Catholic Church, he was really hoping for a debate, for a discussion. He had concerns about what some of the things that he saw in the church of his day, and he was hoping that there could be an opportunity to debate those things. But a few years passed, and it was clear that the Roman Catholic Church really didn't want to debate Luther at all. They wanted to silence him. They wanted to, to squelch this Protestant uprising that was beginning. And so, they summoned Luther to a council where he was going to be tried for heresy in Worms, Germany. So, Luther shows up. He's hoping for a discussion. He's hoping for a debate. And in the middle of this council, he's asked two questions, only two. First, the attorney for the church brings before Luther a big stack of books, and he asks, Did you write these books? And Martin Luther kind of looks at them and and carefully reviews the titles and the contents just briefly, and he says, almost in a whisper of hesitancy, yes, I wrote these books. They ask the second question, will you recant? No debate on what he had written. No discussion, no no examining what the Scriptures actually said, simply this question, this is the only reason why you're here, Martin Luther, will you recant? Now, anybody who knew Martin Luther knew that this guy was a bull in a china shop. He was called the boar in the Pope's vineyard, tearing up the place. Many people probably perhaps thought that he would respond with, with gruff defiance, but Martin Luther perhaps surprised everybody and said, Could I have a night to think it over? So he asked for a night to think it over. People thought perhaps he was stalling, but they gave it to him. And during that evening, Luther poured out his heart in prayer to God. In his book, uh, The Holiness of God, in a chapter entitled The Insanity of Luther, R.C. Sproul records for us some of what Luther prayed that night. Listen to some of what he prayed. O God, almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up, and how small is my faith in you. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. Oh, Lord, help me. My God, my God, don't you hear. My God, are you no longer living? No, you can't die. Forsake me not for the sake of, my, of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, God, send help. Amen. The Lord only knows how long Luther labored in agonizing prayer that night. But eventually morning came, and it was time for Luther to appear once again before the council, the Diet of Worms, as it's called. And once again, he's before that council, and he's asked one question. Will you recant? And this man, who agonized in prayer, in tears, in what appeared to be great weakness, stood in courage before that council and said this, unless I am conv- convicted by Scripture in plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. We don't know if he did this sort of thing, but that would have been cool if he did that in a moment. And then he said, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Now, if you didn't know, I'm a little bit of a Martin Luther fan. I actually have on my socks here, here I stand, I can do no other, which is a bit of a sock joke as well, in case you were interested in that. So, I share that story not only because we're about to celebrate the 506-year celebration anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, but because this wasn't the first time a man went from a night of agonizing prayer to a morning of unshakable courage. You're not already there. I'm going to invite you to go back to your Bibles to Matthew 26 and verse 47. If you were with us last time we were in Matthew's gospel, which would have been two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus on Thursday night in agonizing prayer in the garden under such extreme stress that, that His blood vessels burst and through His sweat glands came drops of blood crying out in agony to the Father, let this cup pass from me. And then, at the end of that agonizing night of prayer in the garden, comes the incredible, stunning words in verse 46 that we ended with last time, rise, let us be going See, my betrayer is at hand. In other words, unshakable courage. Agonizing prayer, God let this cup pass from me. He, he fights through three rounds of temptation, and then temptation is over. Courage, unshakable, undaunting, ready to march to the cross. Now, what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is not some unlucky victim, unable to escape his unfortunate circumstances. The big idea I hope you'll see from our passage this morning is that Jesus is perfectly submissive to the will of his Father. Perfectly submissive. And we see that submission developing over three scenes in our text. Jesus is submissive to a painful, betrayal. Jesus is submissive to a wrongful arrest, and Jesus is submissive to a shameful trial. Those three scenes will be the outline of our sermon this morning. So let's begin with number one, Jesus submitting to a painful betrayal. Look with me beginning in verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, so in the middle of that com- comment to the disciples, get up, wake up, guys, my betrayers at hand. While he's saying that, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. I think often when we picture this scene in the garden, we imagine Judas. And Jesus and the, 12, the other 11 disciples and maybe about 5 or 10 other soldiers. This is a great crowd, a massive crowd of soldiers and religious leaders are there in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on him, on Jesus, and seized him. I don't know if you caught it as we read Psalm 2 to open our service this morning, but the Psalm says, Kiss the Son lest he be angry. In other words, show your affection to Jesus or suffer His wrath. Isn't it interesting that in this account, in this account of Jesus' betrayal, Judas does kiss the son. And yet, Jesus does not pour out anger on Judas. Instead, Jesus is going to march to have all the anger poured out on him. Imagine The pain of this betrayal. Now, the religious leaders wanted, of course, to arrest Jesus when there wouldn't be anyone around. The crowds loved Jesus, so they're looking for an opportunity to arrest him by stealth. They really didn't want to do it at all during the Passover feast, but Judas has kind of provided an opportunity. Judas apparently knew this was a popular spot where Jesus would go to pray, and so Judas goes and leads this crowd to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's going to be dark. You know, there's not lights, right? We, We can see people easily, and Jesus didn't have His picture in the paper or anything like that, no photography, anything like that. So Judas needs to find a way to identify who Jesus is among everybody else. And by the way, if your exposure to Christianity involves a lot of religious artwork, you might just imagine Jesus always appearing with some sort of a halo around His head or a glow about Him. But Isaiah 53 says, He had no former majesty that we should recognize Him. He looked like an ordinary dude. And so in the dark of the garden of Gethsemane there needs to be an easy way to identify who is this Jesus and Judas says I'm going to go and kiss him on the cheek. And so one of the 12 one of the men who had been with Jesus for 3 years one of the men who had risen among the disciples to be the treasurer of the bunch One of the men who was trusted comes up to Jesus and uses a sign of affection, a sign of love to betray his creator. All these details are meant to convey a bit of the supreme agony of this moment. This was a painful betrayal. Perhaps on Jesus' mind and heart was the words of King David who wrote about his own betrayal in Psalm 55. Listen to what he wrote. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Verse 20, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Some of you perhaps can relate just a bit to the agony of betrayal that David describes in Psalm 55. Maybe you've suffered the pain Of broken marriage vows. Maybe you've watched and felt the the sting of children that you raised for decades grow to adulthood and despise you and speak vile bitterness to you or about you. Maybe you've been stabbed in the back by someone that you thought was a dear and trusted friend. If you've ever felt the sting of betrayal in any manner, You can relate a bit with what King David was describing in Psalm 55, but I want to suggest to you that the betrayal that Jesus feels here in this text is even deeper. In his book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, uh, Ken Sandy says, if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for that 2%. That's a really important principle, isn't it? This is something that we often tell folks in counseling. The other person, your wife, your husband, it might be 98% their fault. But guess what? You've got to confess your 2%. And often in betrayal, not always, but often in betrayal, we are perhaps at fault in some way. But Jesus has no fault. Jesus has treated Judas with nothing but perfect and holy and uncompromising, sacrificial love. So why does Jesus submit Himself to this painful betrayal? Because Jesus is on His way to the cross, and this is the will of His Father. We see Jesus' perfect submission to the Father as He submits to a painful betrayal, but we also see it as he submits to a wrongful arrest. In the first scene, we're meant to feel the pain of Jesus' betrayal, but, but as Matthew continues his account of what happened that evening, I think that we're meant to notice how Jesus could have avoided arrest, and yet he chooses not to. Look at verse 51. And behold, one of those who are with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So one of the disciples sees what's happening. Maybe at I mean, these guys were just sleeping. Remember that? So a little foggy headed perhaps if you're like that when you wake up from a nap. A little foggy headed, maybe not really figuring out what's going on. What did Jesus say? The betrayer is at hand. did talk about that back when we had the Passover. Wait a minute, Judas is kissing Jesus. What are all these soldiers doing here? And all of a sudden, one of the disciples springs into action. Now, we know from the other gospels that this disciple is Peter, bold and impetuous Peter. It's, It's easy for us, perhaps, to be hard on Peter, and yet, I think there's something noble here, isn't there? I think in any other situation, in any other betrayal, were it anyone but Jesus, this would be admirable to rise up and defend your friend. I sometimes tell people about my dearest friends, I would take a bullet for that person. Now, whether I actually would or not, I guess, remains to be seen. But Peter grabs his sword, and by the way, he's not trying, most likely, to cut off the guy's ear. Most likely, he's trying to chop off his head, and the dude just happens to duck, juke a little bit, gets the ear sliced off. Peter is, hes at least just a little bit, he's acting on his word, isn't he? Peter told Jesus, though everyone else runs from you, I will not. I will die for you, Jesus. And yet, Jesus is submitting to the will of the Father. Jesus does not need Peter's protection. Peter needs Jesus' protection. Luke's account of this event, tells us in Luke 22, verse 51, that Jesus stopped everything, and He picked up that man's ear, a guy named Malchus, we're told, and He put it back on his head and healed him. Isn't that just like Jesus? He's about to get arrested, falsely condemned, put on trial, He's going to be crucified, He's going to be flogged, and He stops to heal one of the men that is coming to arrest him. I wonder, dear friend, if you ever feel like Jesus is too busy for you. I wonder if you ever feel like you're too bad, too much of a screw-up to bother Jesus with that. Do you see the heart of Jesus in this account? That Jesus would stop everything to heal his enemies, to make them whole, that's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is. Dear friend, it is your brokenness and your sinfulness and your weakness that draws out the love of Jesus. The fact that you are messed up and sinful and rebellious is what draws Jesus' heart to love you and to pursue you, Looks like he does for this man with his ear, so why is Jesus able to love like this? Because he submitted to the will of his father even when it means submitting to wrongful arrest. But I think it's interesting that Jesus is not content with merely healing this guy's ear and then getting on with it. Jesus actually takes time not only to hear, heal Malchus, but to teach his disciples. Even in arrest, Jesus is teaching His people. Look at verse 51, or verse 52 rather. Then Jesus said to him, that's Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. This verse has often been misunderstood. Some have thought that Jesus is teaching against self-defense of any kind, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think what Jesus is telling his disciples is a general principle. You will reap what you sow. If you try to use weapons to solve problems, you often invite what? More weapons in response. Right? That's what just tends to happen. That doesn't mean it's always wrong to do that. In fact, it's often right for those in authority to use force to stop evil. Otherwise, they'll do greater evil. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to use the sword, just know that you're going to die by the sword. Jesus wants His followers to know that we're, we're really not going to put an end to evil with weaponry. Evil needs to be destroyed in a different way, and that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. He's going to destroy evil, not with a sword, but with nails in His hands and feet and a spear in His side. And Jesus continues teaching His disciples in verse 53. He says, "'Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels?' a legion of soldiers, and and the Roman army was about 6,000 men. So Jesus is saying, in an instant, by the word of my Father, I could have 72,000, you can check the math, 72,000 angels here. By the way, one angel versus this whole group, it's no contest. Jesus says, I can have a whole, I can have 12 legions of angels. Peter, I don't need your sword. This, I think, points to a distinction between Christianity and many other world religions, uh, including one of the largest world religions, the religion of Islam. Islam is what is often called an honor religion. And you'll notice in Islam, devotees to Islam will fight. They will take up the sword for the honor of Allah. They will fight and kill to defend the honor of their God. Christianity, rightly understood, has never done that. Have there been times in world history when Christians have done horrible things in the name of Christ? Absolutely. But it's not rooted in Scripture. In the Scripture, we don't have to fight for God's honor. Why? Because Jesus will fight for His honor upon His return. Jesus died in dishonor. Christianity is not an honor religion. Christian, you don't need to fight for God's honor. In fact, what you might need to do is be willing to suffer dishonor for the sake of Christ. Because in so doing, Christ is glorified when His people are willing to humble themselves so that He might be made great. How different Christianity is and the religions of the world. Jesus could have easily escaped arrest, but He is submitting to the will of His Father. It's right for us, I think, to ask why. Why Jesus? And it gives us the answer beginning in verse 54. He says, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But, listen, all this has taken place. Why? That the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Everything that Jesus is enduring in this scene is to fulfill what God has already told us in His Word. Way back in another garden, this promise was first given. You remember the story, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were set in the garden paradise, and God told them, you can eat whatever you want, except for the fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The slithering serpent came along and tempted Eve, and Eve ate and gave to her husband, who was with her, watching the whole thing, doing nothing, and he ate. And then God comes down in the cool of the day and he says, Adam, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where Adam is, but because Adam is hiding and he's drawing Adam out. Adam says, I'm hiding because I was naked. God says, Who told you that you were naked? And he said, I ate this woman that you gave me. Gave me the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I ate. And so doing, the curse of sin entered into the world. Like a virus entering into a clean ecosystem. Sin is now corroding and corrupting everything on the planet. But God, in His amazing grace, even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, promises that it will not always be so. He looks at that slithering, dastardly snake, and He says, there's going to be a great war. Between the seed of the woman and you. And one day there will come someone, an offspring of the woman. And you will bruise his heel. But he's going to crush your head. Ladies who love to see snakes' heads be crushed. It's going to happen. It's happening here. Jesus is going to be bruised As his body is beaten, as nails go through his hand and feet, he is going to be bruised. But in the very moment when the snake feels like he has achieved his greatest victory, he is being absolutely defeated. What Jesus is saying, all of this is happening so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Dear brother and sister, do you see how much confidence Jesus has in the Word of God? Willing to endure this so that the word of God might be fulfilled. Let me ask you, dear Christian, is your confidence in this word shaken? We are told by our culture, by our neighbors, maybe by our children, our siblings, our parents, that this is just a little bit too outdated. And we've learned so much more about so many things, and you really can't trust this anymore. Jesus trusted this enough to die. It's worth us trusting, dear Christian it is worth trusting to the point that you can say what Martin Luther wrote in his famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. There's a monument to a group of reformers called the French Huguenots somewhere in France, and it's nothing but an anvil. And in that monument it says, about the word of God, hammer away ye hostile hands, your hammers break, his anvil stands. The word of God is true. And Jesus says, not one dash, not the smallest letter will pass away until all of it has been fulfilled. Jesus is doing all of this to fulfill all of this for you, Christian. Trust it. Trust it. He's submitting to the will of His Father. We see it finally in His submission to a shameful trial. Jesus is now alone. And that's significant because nobody will suffer alongside Jesus. Nobody. I think we ought to take a little bit of comfort, Christian, in that... All of the disciples fled. There was not one that stood with Jesus. Our confidence is not in how good we can cling to Jesus, but how tightly he can cling to us. So Jesus is abandoned by all of his friends, just like he said, just like Zechariah the prophet had prophesied, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All of them have run away. And now he's put on trial by the religious leaders, beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter, he's left him, he's run away, but he's willing to follow at a distance. He's following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. We'll catch up with Peter a little bit more next Sunday. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. I'll stop for just a moment. The religious leaders had no authority to put Jesus to death on their own. They were governed by Rome. Rome had the authority to execute the death sentence. And so the religious leaders needed some sort of trumped-up charges to to put against Jesus, but Jesus' life was blameless. They even got these false witnesses that are seeking false testimony, but they're finding none. Until at last, two came forward and they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now, if you threatened to destroy the White House or the Capitol building, it would draw the attention of the authorities, don't you think? So too with the temple in Jerusalem. And so they find somebody that remembered a comment that Jesus had made in the early years of His ministry. But Jesus said, he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That'll stick. That'll get the Romans involved. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. It's recorded for us in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And then John writes for us, but he was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's interesting that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, His plan was always to die, rise from the dead. That's why He came. So when Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and in three days build it back up, He's talking about His body. He's so misunderstood by the Jewish people of His day. But why doesn't He defend Himself here? He's on trial. He's being falsely accused. Most of us would defend ourselves. Jesus doesn't. Why? Again, He's fulfilling the Word of God. Listen to what Isaiah 53 7 says about this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Religious leaders are trying to pin something on Jesus. Jesus isn't saying anything that's going to lead to them trapping him. He's obeying the prophecy in Isaiah 53. And so finally the, the high priest is fed up And he confronts Jesus directly. He asks Him head on in verse 63. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now some have suggested that Jesus is being evasive here. He's not really claiming to be God. He's saying, well, you said that I'm God. But that's not at all what Jesus is doing. Uh, Jesus is quoting, when he talks about seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he's quoting another Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the everlasting king. That's me. The one that Daniel prophesied about was me. And the high priest and the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus meant because look what they do, beginning in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes. That was a sign that you would do if somebody did something incredibly blasphemous. Someone said something incredibly irreverent. You would rip your clothes. He rips his clothes, and he says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Blasphemy is a serious offense. It's to speak slanderously against the holiness of of God. What has Jesus done that's in their eyes blasphemy? Jesus has clearly claimed to be God. Dear friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's simply not true. I can show you a dozen different reasons and places, at least in just a few minutes, where Jesus clearly, unequivocally claimed to be God. Because that's who He is. Now, how do they respond to that? They they, they reject Him. They spit in His face. And isn't that, dear friend, a good illustration of what sin is? To spit in the face of your God. Isn't it interesting that the ones accusing Jesus of blaspheming are blaspheming themselves? And Jesus submits to all of this. He doesn't raise up his fists to defend himself. Why? Because he's perfectly submissive to the will of his Father. Now, I want to bring all this home to us and think through how we should respond to this before we conclude this morning. We know that Peter was watching these events from a distance. About 30 years later, he would write a letter to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey First Peter, we studied this a couple of years ago, and in that letter, he encouraged Christians to follow Jesus' example from that night. Listen to what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. We could say continued submitting himself to him who judges justly. I want us to consider briefly in conclusion three pitfalls that we can fall into as we seek to follow Jesus' example in submission. The first pitfall would be when we overemphasize the example of Jesus. here's what I mean. Peter tells us that Jesus suffered as an example. Notice how Jesus suffered without resistance. He didn't cry out. He didn't fight back. He didn't do anything to defend himself. Does that mean then... That it's never right to resist mistreatment? I want to suggest the answer to that question is no. Think about a few examples. Was it right for Martin Luther King Jr. and others to resist the unjust Jim Crow laws during the Civil Rights era? Is it right? Is it right for the nation of Israel to fight back and resist the evil of Hamas? Is it right for a battered wife to stand up and resist her abusive husband, to get authorities involved or or church leaders involved? I'm going to say the answer to all those questions is emphatically yes. It's right to resist in those situations. And I don't say that because it feels right. But because the Word of God demonstrates that it's so. The Word of God repeatedly calls us to, to bring justice to the victims and bring justice to the evildoers. Consider the story of the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. How often does Paul run away when he's under threat of persecution? Paul did not always resist or stand firm and, and just allow them to attack him. Think about the time when Paul appealed to Caesar, using the law to resist those who are mistreating him. I don't think that it's right to follow Jesus' example here in every respect and in every instance. Listen to me, Christian, this is really important. Jesus' suffering was unique. He was doing something that you and I will never do. He was doing something as a substitution for us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But so let me just say it again. If you are, are the victim of some sort of vile mistreatment, it is right for you to resist insofar as it is legal and right for you to do so. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're a doormat. doesn't mean you sit back and take every mistreatment that comes your way. So, one pitfall would be to overemphasize the example of Jesus, Then the other pitfall on the other end would be to underemphasize His example. Some of us look at 1 Peter 2, some of us look at the example of Jesus here, and we say, well, Jesus is God. I can't do that. I can't, I can't deal with mistreatment like that. Jesus suffered without opening his mouth because he is God and there's no way that I can do that. I think perhaps there are husbands and wives in this room who cannot endure the suffering of a minor marital disagreement without feeling like you have to put the last word in. Peter would say to you, even when your husband or your wife misspeaks, You don't have to revile in return. Not every snarky comment requires a comeback. Not every text message deserves a reply. Not every social media post needs a comment. So Christian, let me ask you, how do you behave when things don't go your way? If you believe that Jesus is Lord... You must be willing to follow in His example and suffer in His steps. Be willing to endure mistreatment for the sake of Christ. You don't need to stand up for everything. How do we know what what we need to stand up for and what we don't? We need wisdom. We need the church. We need to be in the Bible. We need Jesus and His Spirit to know. There's a final pitfall that we need to consider before we conclude, and that would be ignoring the substitution of Jesus. Peter tells us that Jesus suffered as an example, and that's true, but Jesus did not suffer only as an example. Jesus suffered first and foremost as a substitute, Jesus suffered to absorb the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. Jesus suffered to drink that cup for you. So Martin Luther is really helpful here. He says the chief article in the foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize Him as a gift. So let me ask you, dear friend, have you received Jesus as a gift? If you leave here thinking what it means to be a Christian is merely to follow Jesus' example, you will find yourself readily discouraged because it is really, really hard. What you need first is to receive Him as a gift, to turn from your sins and trust in His finished work on the cross The trust that He really died to pay your penalty. The trust that He really rose from the dead just as He promised. And the trust that He did that so that you can have a right relationship with God. Let me ask you, dear friend, have you trusted in Him? Have you received Him as a gift? We invite you to do that before you leave here today. And for those of us who have, that is how we are able to navigate those tricky situations when we're mistreated. Because we have Christ. Because we received him as a gift. Because we have his spirit in us. Because we have his people to lean on. Because we have his word to go to for counsel. So let us suffer well, followers of Jesus, in his steps. Because we've received him as a gift. Would you pray with me?